Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Keegan Kirkpatrick. He's the founder and CEO at Redworks Construction Technologies, Inc. Keegan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kim. Yeah, I'm actually really excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing is probably one of the most innovative things I've ever heard of. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, uh, well, I'm from Western Washington originally. I'm from a little town called Puyallup. Uh, okay. I was pretty much bottle—I was pretty much bottle-fed on the construction industry. My dad uh, is a finished carpenter and a woodworker who has been build, building staircases all his life. And okay. since I could walk, I've been—I've been either sweeping the shop or, uh, sand, or sanding and finishing work that he's brought in, or just doing anything I can to help put houses together. And I kind—I really got a sense of the industry at a very young age. Okay. Very cool. But you went to university and you took something that is really quite fascinating. So what did you take and why did you go into that? Well, you might say I ran as far away from the construction industry as I could when I went to college. I uh, <laughs> went to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. <laughs> yeah, I went to Embry-Riddle uh, in Prescott, Arizona, and uh, got my uh, Bachelor of Science in uh, Aerospace Engineering on an astronautics track. Uh, my cool. specialty was primarily focused on uh, navigating uh, spacecraft from one planet to the next and how to ultimately propel them. So rocket science at the most fundamental level. When okay. I got out of college, I went to work for a company called Mazden Space Systems. And I was there for about two dozen test flights, I think, was uh, what it ultimately shook out to. Some tethered, some most, most, of, yeah, most of them fixed, doing uh, just basically any type of work you can imagine uh, with the study of rocketry. So once I was done with all that, though, uh, it was in the middle of the sequester. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of work to be had. And I started looking for new opportunities. And I'd really kind of gotten bitten by the startup bug. Okay. And I heard about this challenge that NASA was putting on for their centennial challenges. They run those every year. Okay. And the one they'd kind of brought to my attention was the 3D print habitat challenge. Okay. The goal was to figure out a way how to design a habitat on Mars using just not entirely, but at least to some extent, local sources of regoliths. In other words, making buildings out of dirt. Sure. Now, well, because sending I, building materials through space to Mars from Earth is an astronomical challenge, never mind probably near impossible <laughs> or very costly. Well, yeah, it's very, very costly and not sustainable. If you want to have uh, people sure. you know, survive on Mars for the long term, you have to understand that it uh, just to give you everyone a quick yeah, crash sure, course sure. in uh, orbital mechanics, uh, Mars uh, orbits so much further away from the sun that it takes about its year is about twice as long as Earth's, which means it takes about oh, twice as long to go around the sun as it does as the Earth does. So for about a year, Mars is actually on the opposite side of the sun as the Earth. Interesting. So it would be completely impractical to try to send any type of, so if you have a habitat that's damaged on the surface, it wouldn't make any sense to send something to Mars to resupply. 
So you need to be able to build on the surface to a degree that you can be self-sufficient. Okay. So we decided to kind of take that to its logical extreme, which was to figure out how to design a habitat that could be built entirely using local sources of regular. And that meant figuring out how to make much more durable substances than what had previously been proposed. Okay. And we looked into probably half a dozen different techniques that had been explored for the last several several decades. Okay. And came upon an idea that NASA had kicked around using, uh, uh, they wanted to essentially put a great big microwave generator on the back end of what would have looked like a giant Zamboni on the moon. Okay. And, this, and these microwaves would have would have uh, vulcanized uh, lunar dirt behind it and turned that into a sheet of hard glass. And okay. the idea was you could generate roads doing that. Now we found, now after the habitat challenge ended, we found a much, much, much more energy efficient solution to achieve kind of the same basic idea of being able to artificial. It was a form of artificial vulcanization. So in other words, having being able to put the power of a volcano in your hands wow. to be able to cre- create and 3D print artificial stone objects. So Interesting. that's what we've been working on. That's what Redworks's basic idea has been to figure out a way how to 3D print rock using the same principles of construction that we used for tackling the challenge of how to build on Mars. Okay. So how does that exactly work? Because to be honest, like I had to talk to you and I heard about what you guys were doing because I was completely fascinated by it. So how does it work? Well, uh, we currently have provisional patents out on a technology that we're calling uh, the multi-core induction extruder. Okay. So base or what we've uh, just come to know is Mickey in-house. Okay. Now, Mickey is basically a 3D printer that uses what's called induction heating, which is basically electromagnetism. Okay. Uh, in a process that we developed that allows us to very, very quickly and very efficiently heat up uh, regolith to a molten state. In a previous test chamber we built, which was just using conductive heating, so what you'd find in like your oven, okay. uh, we were able to get uh, a sample of dirt to be basically like a dirt clod rather than just being dirt uh, in over the space of about four hours. And it took a ridiculous amount of energy and the device itself was the size of a trash can and weighed about 150 pounds. Okay. Mickey is the size of a Pringles can wow. and can do that in about three and a half minutes. Wow. Yeah. From cold soak. Uh, oh, oh, okay. So how do you, how do we explain this? So, Like anybody can kind of understand this. So how does it work? I buy a piece of land and I'm looking to put a structure on it. Walk me through actually what you guys do to actually build that structure. All right. So the machine that we'd have is going to be about the size of something you can stick in the bed of a pickup truck. Okay. So you drive a rig out, you know, either have a forklift or maybe even just a handful of guys. Okay. who can then offload the printer itself, which is just going to be, it's just going to be shaped like a big box. It'll look like, you know, your standard desktop 3D printer is just much bigger. Okay. You drop that on site and begin excavating material for what would, you know, dig, essentially you're digging your foundation. And you'd be taking that excavated material and then dropping off on the conveyor, which would then be dropped into a hopper on the back end of the printer. Okay. That dirt then goes through a feed line, which takes it into the print head itself. And inside the print head, is where the magic happens. That's where our technology, our proprietary technology, would then heat up the material 
into into a semi-molten state and extruded it out, uh, it would come out kind of like a molten taffy, you know, essentially artificial magma. So that would then be laid down layer by layer, just like a plastic 3D printer does. Okay. And so the next, so by the time the next layer comes on top of it, the layer below it is cooled and is hard enough for the next layer on top of it to be supported. So there's no, you're not going to get anything to squish, which is the problem you have with the concrete 3D printing. The next layer, uh, ends up kind of crushing the layer before it. And so there's all this deformation. And so you can't uh, create any kind of self-supporting structures as easily as you could using uh, this process. With us, you don't, with us, there's no water, there's no binder. All you need is a steady power supply. Okay. So, so how does that kind of, kind of work? So, okay. So it's coming off the printer. How do I actually start, working with it like do i have to pour it myself or do i kind of just move the printer along or how does that kind of work well the printer will be in a fixed position okay so it'll be kind of your own little personal factory it'll be generate. it'll be making bricks pavers whatever type of design of modular material you want oh, and then can push okay. those out as needed okay so you can make a brick wall uh, generating your own material completely on site without having to import anything to you uh, okay. save for i guess the mortar okay so you're basically 3D printing brick by brick, and then I can take the bricks and construct a pathway, a house, whatever I want to do with those bricks. Correct? Exactly. And our long-term plans involve making bigger machines that can make even tilt-up structures. So you can go even beyond that. What do you mean by tilt-up? Sorry. Well, this is something we see a lot down here in SoCal, and it's becoming a very popular way to build, has been making these precast molds Uh, about between 6 and 8 feet tall to be able to tilt up and be able to stand up a warehouse, you know, a fairly durable warehouse or building relatively quickly. Okay. So we're looking at the possibility of being able to make a machine that would eventually be something like the size of a shipping container that could be able to generate much larger structures like that. Okay. No, that's, that's actually quite fascinating. So I, I'm curious then what types of materials can you actually make with your current process? Well, right now it's a material that we would call welded tuft. Okay. Uh, so it, no one really hears about this, but this is probably one of the most popular forms of building material to be used in the ancient world. Okay. The Romans used it extensively uh, to build houses for most of the general population. You know, we often think of, of the Roman Empire and marble columns and, you know, advanced concrete and all this stuff. But that was for infrastructure projects and for the super rich. Okay. So the average, you know, Joe Schmo Roman... <laughs> back in the ancient times, sure. they were living in houses out of welded tuft. Now, welded okay. tuft, originally, originally, you could only get it through natural sources. It's made from uh, volcanic ash. Okay. And around the Mediterranean, there was a lot of this stuff uh, left over from, the, from an explosion of an ancient volcano where Santorini, Greece is today. Okay. Now, they mined this pretty much to exhaustion. Our machine essentially allows us to make this artificially, and it's, it's just rock, basically. That's, okay. <laughs> there's a I can uh, get into the mineralogy all day long, but it's essentially just a strong stone rock. Sure. Uh, Of roughly same material properties as concrete as far as we can see uh, from our own internal looks, uh, internal studies. We're getting ready to do some far more extensive destructive testing with some uh, labs with the ASTM certified machines, so we'll be able to have more uh, concrete data, uh, if you'll pardon the horrendously obvious pun. Sure. No, but the, the thing that's quite fascinating about that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, some of those structures from ancient times are very much still around. Like they've sur- survived 
a lot of years, right? <laughs> Is that fair to yes, say? Yes, they have. Yes. Uh, I mean, another, uh, probably the most iconic example of welded tough structures are actually the Easter Island heads, which have been standing oh. out in the middle of the Pacific, taking the worst form of weather that you could imagine for centuries. Sure. And they're still, they've experienced hardly any erosion at all. So this is an extremely durable material. And, okay. uh, you know, I, I mentioned the Pacific specifically because we've been in talks with folks in U S Naval facilities command and air mobility command, who've been really interested in what this technology could be used for creating more durable structures in the Pacific re region, which is of uh, great concern in the United States defense, uh, defense sector. Course, now, yeah. they're not just thinking of this in terms of going in and, you know, building a forward operations base. They're thinking much more in terms of disaster relief and how we can be able to use what is available on site to be able to stand up new structures when a hurricane or a typhoon comes in and seriously damages uh, the local infrastructure. Sure. You know, if you want a very immediate uh, example of this, imagine if after uh, – Puerto Rico was devastated by the last hurricane that passed through there. Yeah. We could go in with a few of our machines and take the same dirt that just washed away all the roads and use that to stand up at least even just temporary uh, road lines to be able to get to the parts of the island that would, were otherwise blocked off. Wow. You'd be able to get what you can't make on site to the people who need it immediately. Sure. That's kind of what I feel is uh, the most disruptive aspect of this technology is being able to be able to stand up infrastructure immediately where it's needed without having to worry about all the other logistical baggage that modern society needs to be able to get anything done. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So how long, roughly, does it take to create a road? I get, like, what do you go by? How long does it take you to create, like, a mile of road or something like that? Like, what's the unit of measure? That varies wildly depending on the type of material and okay. the width of the road. Let me put let me put it in a much more a, a tangible example. Sure, okay. Say you want to make uh, just normal, everyday garden bricks, you know, what you find on houses and gardens all over the United States. Sure. Those standard bricks, we can make, our machine with a standard one inch wide aperture would be able to make about 250, 260 of those per hour is what we estimate using okay. a machi machine uh, on our process, using this kind of standard design of machine. Okay. Now, if that's, now those are solid bricks. With 3D printing, uh, it all comes down to the flow rate of the material coming out of the machine. And that means that uh, if you have a more complicated design, it can change the time it takes to make it uh, dramatically. So it, you made something like a perfect vertical stack design of a brick that is actually like shaped like a honeycomb on the inside of it. Okay. You might be able to cut that time down, or it might be a little bit longer, depending on how everything overhangs. It's uh, 3D printing opens up some very interesting possibilities for how we can change construction, not just making it more sustainable, but how we can change how uh, we can build homes from a pure design side of things. And then there's an even greater opportunity of how we can make homes not just more sustainable but more livable by being able to 3d print build materials that have conduit lines already pre-laid into them or much more efficient means of say capturing rainwater for more austere parts of the world i mean imagine if in a desert every single home had a its bricks set up to where they essentially had their own little piping and water capture systems inside of them and that can be brought down to reservoirs that could then be you know connected to everything else in the community there, the opportunities for what this technology can do to disrupt the way that we think about building. That's what I'm the most excited to see what we can do in the future. Sure. Interesting. Okay. So I, I obviously this is super new and you guys are the first ones doing this, 
but give us some other ideas of what you guys could do with this technology without obviously kind of giving away your kind of secret sauce, right? <laughs> well, I'll try. Uh, so we explored a lot of different opportunities uh, back when we were in the middle of the Habitat Challenge, and we continue to, to look into different ways on how this can be used. You know, okay. the one one opportunity that we've been looking into is then this really changes kind of the math of uh, material cost when you're looking at how to build any kind of home. Sure. Because uh, you're not having to import anything to site in the first place. That's the big change here is that you're ultimately making it possible to build totally locally. But you're also making it possible to build with what would otherwise be a useless uh, byproduct of construction, which is your excavated material. And okay. so the long short of this is that I'm saying is that you can build uh, as much structure as you could possibly want, dep depending on just how much dirt is available, which is, you know, nigh infinite. Sure. So imagine if you are, say, you're in Seattle, Washington, and you're trying to de deal with the fact that there's a fairly large homeless population coming up in that city these days. In fact, a lot of major urban areas are having that problem. Sure. Imagine if you, instead of having to, to deal with the city council and figure out, oh, we you know, have to build it in, a, in an area that's already got low housing prices because lower rent housing brings down the cost of homes. It, imagine if that wasn't even a problem. Imagine if you could, could instead build extremely thick wall, walled low rent housing directly by, say, freeways and use them as sound dampeners. You can oh, make the walls as thick as you want to where the occupants wouldn't even notice. You could actually use low rent housing as a means to be able to improve the value of the area around it because now you've turned what would otherwise be a detriment to a region just by how uh, real estate prices are calculated it really shouldn't be that way way but sure the nature of the beast right now sure but if you could turn low-cost housing into a something that actually adds value to an area because now not only can you make say a low-cost housing development a sound dampener by making the walls so thick to where the occupants don't notice it you can make the facing walls that are actually facing outward that the everyone walking by would see. You could make those extremely decorative because you now have an additive process that can, yeah, that can make a very, very intricate design where normally if you were just building with concrete, you have to, you know, get the most bang for your buck. And that's ultimately going to come down to the cost of materials and the cost to get them there and the expertise required to make them. But with 3D printing, it's an automated process that can just manufacture as much as you need on site using our technology. Right. You could make whatever structure you wanted. So you could make low-cost housing developments look like very, very intricate, very, very beautiful pieces of architecture. And you'd actually incentivize communities to be able to build more of these structures. You could essentially use this as a means to make eliminating homelessness something that people have a direct selfish financial reason to want to take advantage of because it would essentially allow them to be able to raise the value, property values of everything around them rather than lowering the property values. Interesting. Yeah. No, I, I think the whole thing's really quite fascinating to me, right? Because, mm. yeah, obviously that that is one of the biggest challenges in North America and other parts of the world, right? And it's interesting if 3D printing could be one of the big things that really fixes or at least adds to fixing that problem globally. Absolutely. And it's and the solutions are essentially universal across every sector of the, the industry. For the first people we're planning on selling this to are going to be building some fairly extra, you know, fairly extravagant high-end development. Okay. These are the folks who 
have got kind of the vision and want to take advantage of the technology in the early phases. Okay. And these properties have kind of a different problem. They're for them, it's lowering the co- cost to get material to site that is the biggest need. The, sure. When you're trying to build a high-end property, you want usually you want something that's going to be on a very scenic view. Well, sure. as any builder can tell you, scenic views are often a real pain in the neck to actually get to. Sure. Uh, I can imagine, so, yeah. So our first customer has told us, look, this is a project that's going to be out in uh, Sweetwater Mesa, just outside the hills of uh, overlooking the Bay of Malibu. Okay. Absolutely gorgeous vista it's going to be looking at. But the most costly thing to build this project is going to be the cost it's going to get us just to move material to site in the first place. Sure. Well, and wouldn't if it be also can... like taking the dirt and other, like actually digging a hole and taking the the dirt or whatever comes out of that hole away too? Isn't that really costly? Absolutely. Okay. You're removing the dirt removal costs entirely. That's universal. That's especially sure. out here in Southern California. Sure. If you're in any part of the country that has really allows that has bad soil contamination and you know, it's usually uh, directly responsible for really lousy air quality. Cause anytime someone has to build along those roads or dig up the land to be able to build a foundation to a house, you're kicking a lot of dirt up in the air, get kicked up by the wind and all of a sudden you get people hacking and coughing. I mean, I live out in the Antelope Valley in uh, Southern California and we have a, uh, there's a fungus infection out here called, called uh, Valley Fever. Basically, okay. any t- time the wind really kicks up around here, you're hacking and coughing, and uh, you could be laid up for a few weeks with this stuff. Oh, wow. And I didn't so, know it was that bad. And so, well, it's not universal. Not everybody gets it, but sure, it is a risk. Okay. It's, uh, Southern California air quality is no secret. Yeah, uh, that's fair. And people tend to cope as best they can. And one of the ways that uh, the, the state has got it to cope is that if you're say, trying to, uh, you know, pave a new road, you're only allowed to do road construction, I think, every mile is how it's set up. So with this, you can eliminate uh, any of that kicked up dirt and debris by essentially moving it the moment it's dug up and dropping it into a machine that turns it into an inert block that you can immediately use for construction materials. So you're taking something that would be a detriment normally and making it something that has value to not only builders, but to the communities that they're being built on in the first place. Interesting. Okay. No, this this whole thing is really actually quite fascinating. So you mentioned you have a, some clients already using this technology. Can anybody reach out to you guys and get one of these 3D printers? Or, or where are you guys at with that stage of things? Right now we're t- taking letters of, letters of intent and interest. Okay. Yes. The machine okay. is uh, right now still uh, going through kind of its final cycle full of development. Uh, okay. We're hoping that have the first uh, demo, first uh, public demos ready to go. The advantage of the construction industry, I suppose you could say, is that it's kind of slow moving. And so uh, sure. when we tend to make a deal with someone, the project has got a few, has got at least a few more months or at least a year out before we actually start breaking ground. Gotcha. So if people want to reach out to us and are interested, we're happy to talk to them. Okay. So I'm curious, though, to dive a little bit deeper into the process of actually creating the machine because obviously – there's a lot of stuff you could probably use from the 3D printing space, but you mentioned earlier that you had to build some proprietary stuff. So I'm always curious to know how many kind of prototypes did you have to go through to actually get to where you guys are now and and walk us through that journey of actually building the first few versions of the, the printer. You know, it's a hard thing to say how many prototypes we've actually gone through because we've 
you know, we keep, it, there's a, it's kind of a ship of feces sort of thing. Okay. You know, you end up, uh, you end up just taking one part off and replacing it over and over uh, and over again, okay. again to where the, you know, you can never quite tell, like, is this the same machine we ha- had six months ago? Uh, okay. So I would say we've technically had three prototypes, but okay. uh, I'd, I'd say it's been far more than that, that, just in terms of the number of iterations we've gone through with the current platform. Okay. Uh, so this has been a process that's been taken probably over two years uh, wow. to actually uh, build and develop everything from scratch. Uh, a type no one's ever developed a heating system like this before to be able to center uh, non-conductive materials like regolith. Uh, induction heating has normally only been possible for uh, conductive materials like metal. Right. So we've developed a way to be able to do it with something like dirt, which sometimes will have a little iron in it, but not never enough to really completely center the whole thing. Okay. So we've gone through, through a lot of prototyping on this to be able to get to this phase, and right now uh, we're in kind of the last mile of that which is really all about uh, finishing off uh, not even finishing off just optimizing the design of the uh, induction system itself and then mounting that on top of a 3d printing platform now this is where we can actually borrow a lot almost everything uh, from the 3d printing industry itself okay we're lucky to where additive manufacturing has been around just long enough now to where the all the really uh, all the most of the major parts have been standardized to to absurdity okay so for us it doesn't take too much effort to procure everything we need to be able to build out a 3d printed gantry and we've got the team that has all you know enough experience uh working with 3d printing throughout the course of their careers to where building a printer after building the print head is the easy part okay interesting yeah okay so you mentioned your team, and I'm always quite fascinated to know how did you meet the other people on your team? Because you have a couple other founders, you have some advisors. I'm always curious to know how you met those people. I was dating someone after hearing about the the NASA Habitat Challenge, and immediately, you know, we were just shooting the breeze one day, and I just say, I'd love to get involved in this, but I really don't have the resources. I'd love to find out. And she mentioned there's a little 3D printing shop in Lancaster that does a lot of outreach and training and might have some resources to send out. Okay. So I call up Linus, Linus Tavoli, the gentleman who ran the shop, and half an hour later, I'm talking to him. And we're just kicking back and forth ideas on what you can do for 3D printing on Mars and you know how this can be done. And he had a lot of experience uh, 3D printing uh, in the movie, movie business. He was a prop okay. maker. And, sure. Uh, yeah, he's a great guy and uh, i recommend you take a look at his resume he's a, he's doing some very impressive stuff these days all right cool. he's no longer uh, involved in the team uh, and we were sorry to see him go but uh, we completely respected uh, how he had to leave sure uh, happens yeah but uh, while i was talking to lino paul petros who would go on to become our chief design officer was there doing some work with lino the same day okay and he immediately fell in love with the idea and wanted to get on board and not long after that we were connected to Susan Jennings, uh, who was a local uh, environmental compliance expert uh, for the solar industry. Solar industry. Okay. So she was a geologist, an engineering. She was an engineering geologist. Okay. And that was someone we absolutely needed for the challenge. But she also had ex- knew Leo and had experience uh, in the 3D printing space and had a, about 20 years experience in the construction space as an engineering geologist. Wow. So the team ended up being put together in I think the space of about 20 minutes. Wow. And all, all from done. just like a phone call. Yeah, also from a phone call. Wow. Now, for me, this was something that I am still blown away by because 
Prior to all that, I was busy trying to f- find work in the aerospace in- industry in the middle of the sequester. Okay. And that was anyone who's worked in that business will tell you that during that period, it was rough. You're just so used to hearing no, 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 every hour of every day or just hearing nothing. Okay. That this team was born just from a series of very quick yeses of people wanting to get involved in something just because it sounded like an interesting idea. Now, that was how the team was formed. The company was, was a bit more of a longer story. After the Habitat Challenge was formed, it was completed. Okay. And we made it to the finals and we you know, set our piece. We were ex- expecting like, okay, I guess we'll just kind of go our separate ways for a little while here and see what we can't do to pull together some money. And maybe we'll be able to go you know, compete in the next phase, whenever that is. Sure. Well, NASA took a little while trying to get that next phase put together. And in the time that that had to happen, we started getting a lot of phone calls from people who were interested in what we did. And we got invited out to speak at MIT's new Space Age conference. We got invited out to speak at a conference called Dent the Future out in San Francisco. And I got uh, really goaded by about uh, four or five people I really respected in the industry to go out to a conference uh, called uh, the uh, Space Symposium out in Seattle. Okay. Now, Very cool. Uh, at now, at New Space Age, I met who would become the first advisor to Redworks Construction Technologies, a man by the name of Richard Godwin. Okay. Now, Rich has been in the space industry forever, but he's someone who, anytime he sees an interesting project that's even tertiarily related to space, he grabs hold of it with both hands. Okay. He's one of the few guys who's worked in this industry to see technology spun off uh, here on Earth. Okay. Now, Rich uh, was the one who connected me to go out to the event in Seattle, and that's where I met Ellen Chang, who uh, was the one who really helped us bring the rest of the advisory group together. Now, Ellen uh, runs the Lightspeed Innovations Accelerator, and that accelerator program was what helped turn Redworks from an adv- from a team of designers to a real company. Okay. That, pro- that was what got us to kind of turn from being a company whose technology was born in space to a company who- from a team whose technology was born in space, I'm sorry, to sure. a company whose technology had a place to live and breathe on Earth. Very cool. And that was the was was really the crucible in which we were able to build our business plan to connect with our first customers to connect with the rest of the advisors who would go on to be form the lifeblood of the team so this has been a long journey of uh where in the beginning it was us just kind of tripping over ourselves to kind of figure out which way was up and we've really started to hit our stride now and it's been absolutely a result of the friends and colleagues we've made along the way Sure. But it and, sounds like you didn't start out even want, wanting to really even start a company. You just wanted to do this NASA challenge. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. It it was literally my thought process when I first heard about the NASA challenge was that sounds funny. Sure. And that was pretty much the same thought process that went through the brain <laughs> of the founders of Redwoods. Oh, that sounds cool. We'll do that for like three months and, you know, who knows what will happen. <laughs> and then, sure. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it really was a, an example of that, you know, you never quite know where life's going to take you. On occasion, uh, you know, something that just sounds like some harebrained little, you know, fun project ends up turning into something that, that takes up three years of your life uh, to build something that might change the world. No, that's amazing, man. I, I think that's really great. But I'm curious to know, how did you guys fund this thing? Because you kind of mentioned an accelerator, but... How did you guys actually build this thing? Because it probably cost you a lot of time and money to actually get to where you guys are now. Well, I won't say the dollar amount, but I will no, say that it was, a, it, it was a significant amount of capital. And it was sure. funded largely out of pocket. Okay. Uh, okay. So you bootstrapped. And uh, now, not just out of pocket, monetarily speaking, I guess you could say it was funded out of pocket and out of garage. 
Okay. Uh, the advantage to the disadvantage to doing any kind of manufacturing based startup is that you're not building software. You can't uh, just do it off of a computer. You have to actually have hardware on hand. Right. The advantage is, is that when your team is made up of a bunch of tinkerers and pack rats, you sure. tend to have amassed a lot of the stuff you need in the first place. <laughs> so uh, Go to the attic kind of so thing. <laughs> Paul, yes. So Paul Petros and Susan both had essentially shops full of 3D printing stuff uh, uh, okay. built up in their own garage. And that was kind of where we built the you know, the first Redworks manufacturing shop, I suppose you could say, it was out of uh, Paul Petros's little outbuilding he had on his home. That's cool. Uh, we've, uh, it's, you know, it, it is a stereotype for a reason. I mean, sure. uh, when you're trying, when you're trying to get off the ground, you bite and claw and scratch with whatever you got. And sure. we're lucky enough to where we both had, we, all three of us had not only just a lot of experience built up, but a lot of gear that we've managed to, you know, put together over the course of our careers sure. that we were able to bring to the bear. And, uh, no, I think that's really good advice, though, right? Because so many people sometimes think they need to raise millions of dollars and have this huge manufacturing plant. And it, it just sounds astronomical, right? When in a lot of cases, a lot of the most, well, you could argue the most successful companies in the history of the planet started in people's garages. Apple, Google, all Amazon, all of them. You name them, right? So... I, I think Absolutely. that's really good advice, right? Right, and you know, no one's an island. You you take yeah. it, you, the you take whatever help you can from friends and family, and we've been lucky to have very very supportive families in our us too. Oh, that's awesome, man! So I'm curious yeah. to know what does the rest of 2019 look for you guys? Obviously, you want to start rolling out uh, to more probably states and and kind of beyond, but. Is there anything else that you want to mention that you guys are you have on the horizon without giving away too much? But this is a year we hope to actually get, get the first demo projects off the ground and really just start showing people what this process looks like face to face. So this will be we're hoping 2019 is going to be a good year for Redworks where people will be able to actually start to not only see but touch uh, what we're trying to bring to the construction industry. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? And I'm assuming it's obviously you probably can't live 3D print something at a conference, but you could obviously have some of the materials that you guys have printed at your booth. Is that fair to say? Most likely. Now, uh, I don't think uh, we'll uh, be bringing anything to the construction robotics forum just yet. Okay. That's not really the format that we have set up. Set up. Gotcha. But uh, this is not the... Uh, you know, you say we can't 3D print something... Uh, at a conference this would not be <laughs> most conferences have asked like could you maybe make that work is that possible and uh, i've always had to point out well first of all the machine is probably going to be six feet by six feet wide okay so i don't know how much space you really want to give us second of all <laughs> uh, mater the material is pretty hot by the time it comes out of the machine so i don't know what the safety uh, specs are going to be for just general passerbys sure uh, fair enough it's Material is safe to touch after 20 minutes, but uh, that's around. I trust that around construction contractors who know what, who have read the safety regs and have everything taken care of. Sure. I'm not sure they want to put that in a closed building uh, with a lot of flammable material around it. No, that that makes a lot of sense. No, I, I'm no, I, I think that's great, man. So I'm I'm curious though to know what other advice would you give somebody that has maybe a cool, innovative technology, but they're scared to actually just go for it. Because 
That's what you guys are doing, essentially. I got to say, the advice, the best advice I have will be completely, won't be that helpful for a lot of folks. Okay. Uh, and the, the advice is this. The hardest step of this entire process is just the willingness to make that first step, to pick up the first phone and actually start calling people and trying to put the thing together. All you got to do, uh, all that it took to really get Redworks off the ground as to start getting people to actually start calling us in the first place was something we did purely to promote the company, not the company, the team during the challenge. Something that was purely to try to get folks just to be able to call us and uh, see if we couldn't get a little bit more uh, grassroots support going into this Habitat Challenge, which was to just put together a website and put together a web presence. And that the weekend that it took to put that together kind of was the bare bones uh, that it takes to put together a company in the first place. Is to put yourself out there is really all that's doing. And it's not just creating a social media presence. It's really creating a central repository for people to get a hold of you. To build a business in my, from what I've learned from accelerators and, you know, personal trial and error, our team has discovered is really just sitting down and actually doing the work. And for a lot of folks, that's a really scary thing to start on because the moment you do that, you're off to the races and you could either cr crash and bust your teeth on the sidewalk or you could end up really changing the world. And that's scary for a lot of people. And that's why a lot of folks don't end up going to do this. And there's no shame at all and not wanting to do that. But if you really have a piece of technology, if you have something that, you know, is big that you th think the world needs to see, that you want your voice to be heard, you've got to be willing to put yourself out there first and foremost. And that's a cliche thing to be said, but I've learned one thing these last few years, and that's that it turns out those cliches uh, have a lot of truth to them. No, I, I think that's really good advice. I, I know I, I, my story's not as uh, complex as that, I, I suppose, but like I, I remember somebody saying to me one day that anybody that's ever been successful at anything just decided to go for it one day. And I just kind of looked mm. at them like, wow, that sounds so stupid and simple, but that's really yeah, it, what it is, it, right? It's just like you just need it, to decide to go for it. Like, it just, just it make sounds, a call. Yep, and that sounds like you're saying, oh, it's oh, it's that easy. Well, what about this, that, and the other thing? And like, this, that, and the other thing is what comes afterward. Yeah. This, and, that, and the other thing is, you know, well, you just have to start the process. You have to start talking to people. You have to start, start reaching out to see if you can't find customers, if you can't validate if the idea is going to work or not. And if it doesn't work, you try to change up however the business model has to be. That's, it's, all about, it's all about going through the process. It's, I can't remember who said it for the life of me, but uh, there's a lesson uh, out there called you have to just learn to love the process. Because you're going to get kicked in the teeth for a while, and you just have to learn to how to deal with that and bob and weave, and eventually you'll get to where you're trying to go. Yeah, and and if you don't get to where you're trying to go, you're going to get somewhere, and it's going to be worth it when it's all said and done. No, I, I think that's really good advice, right? And I, I think, and you yeah. mentioned it earlier, and I don't know if people picked up on it. It took you guys a couple years to get to where you are now, right? Like this didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in a weekend. Oh, sure, yeah. you kicked it off in a weekend. But it took you two oh, yeah. years it's, to get to where you are now. Yeah, it's always it's really like this is just something like on a personal uh, on just a you know if anyone's ever got time, 
I always recommend them to like Google uh, any major company you know and just okay. look at when they were actually founded. And you'll notice there's a pretty wide gap for a lot of these companies <laughs> on when they came into being and when they started to be, when you started to hear about them. So sure. It's, it, it's always a long t- time. And uh, everybody, you know, th- there's a reason all these companies come from humble beginnings. It's uh, that if you're not thirsty, you're never going to be able to actually, you know, claw and scrape to be able to get the company to where you need it to be. No, man, I, I think that's actually really good advice. And it's interesting. I never thought about just Googling companies that you respect and actually see how long, roughly, it took you to hear about them from when they started. I, I actually think that's really good advice, actually. That's, that's quite fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's a common thing in this industry for people to get really kind of hung up on how long it's taken them to get this, that, to get the company to a certain phase. And you really start to realize why a lot of startups you know, just end up kind of dying before they ever end up being known about in the first place. And it really just kind of boils down to people involved just either get discouraged and they just don't have the, they just don't want to continue on the journey in the first place. It's, it is a question of persistence. And again, I, I want to stress, there is no shame in quitting. It's hard. It is, it is not sure. fun for those first few years. You are going to take a lot of hits. It's and. There is nothing I've, I've, I have a whole new level of respect for people who want to just come in every day and punch the clock. That's not something that I uh, am going to judge anyone for later in life. No, that's fair. No, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I used to think the exact same thing. And then you, you work at a startup and maybe you have some equity in the startup and you're grinding it out for years and there's been more times than I can remember, probably even in the last year, that I thought, man, I just need to get a, a nine to five, Monday to Friday job and just just do it, right? And, and just yep. be content with that. And then, I don't know, something just pulls me back and you pick yourself back up, you dust yourself back off, you try some new things and... You get a little victory and you just keep going, right? Whatever that means. Oh yeah, it's once you have yeah, it's you will be more depressed doing this than <laughs> you have been at anything else in your life. But once you get the t- taste for when those little victories come, it's like a drug. You you can't walk away from it. It's why, you know, if you ask a lot of these guys in this, you know, kind of world like well what your profession is, that most of them will just say like, "Well, I'm in I'm in startups." Yeah. Just because it's the shortest way to describe it, because they're bouncing from you know one technology that's working on one industry to the next and changing positions in different companies all over the place. It's a culture that uh, really gets in your blood. Sure. And and the only people that really understand what you're talking about and what you're going through are people that are either going through it or have been through it, right? Like even your probably oh, yeah. close it's, friends and family don't really get it. And and a lot of them probably think you're crazy. Maybe not in a bad way, but they probably think that at least some of them, maybe they won't tell you that, but a lot of them probably think you're crazy. <laughs> not it. Right. Well, I've been at peace with, I've been at peace with the fact that most people, people have probably thought I'm a little nuts to do this, to <laughs> do this with our t- team from the get go. I mean, our team is just used to, be, to people thinking we're a little bit, a bit kooky. And as a result, we all think we're all, t- we're all completely in sync with one another. <laughs> it's been a good it's a good thing to have a team where everyone's just a little bit nuts. Yeah, but I, but I think you need that, right? I think that's great, man. Yeah. But uh, I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. We're kind of coming to the end of the show. 
Is there anything else that you want to mention before we close out the show? Well, not at, not at this time, unfortunately. Yeah, I wish nope. I had more to make announcements for, but uh, this, I think, has been a great show. I uh, really appreciate you bringing me on, and I uh, would love to come back one of these days. Perfect, man. And I would love to have you back and, and check in and see where you guys are in six months or a year or something like that. But for people that want to get more information about everything you guys are doing, do you want to mention where they can online? Yeah. Uh, look for us at redworks3d.com. That's R-E-D-W-O-R-K-S 3D.com. You'll be able to f- find more information about what our, t- what our technology is, what our team is, our origins, and how to get a hold of us. And that's uh, about the easiest way to get a, get a hold of Redworks. You can also fi- find us on tw- Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, Keegan, I really appreciate you taking the time of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day, man. Thank you, Kevin. Back at you. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.